Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for reloading the gospel in our souls so that we get it right, so that it's tied down nicely and neatly, so that we can fulfill the great commission that your Son, our Lord and Savior, imparted to us before his departure. Thank you for giving us grace and showing your love through that grace. Most of all, this was evidenced on a cross 2,000 years ago, for which we are most grateful and thankful for. May we never become familiar with it. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message is obviously midstream. It's part 11 of the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. Uh, I don't know what to say. If you're not keeping up with the lessons, uh, that's not a very good sign at all for many reasons. So please keep up with the lessons. Uh, Sunday was a balanced statement on what we could call faith fruit. Uh, And it's just the shortened version of my saying that um, if you're saved, you will bear fruit. If you have true faith, which is a gift from God, you will bear fruit. That's something that the Spirit has really driven home from the pulpit now for uh, quite a few parts in this series. But Sunday was interesting because uh, after the sort of hard lessons on faith fruit, He gave us a balance statement so that we didn't get cockeyed, so to speak, or off-kilter, as you might say. So here's a balance statement. Faith fruit will be produced by every believer, guaranteed. However, only God knows if a person is saved or not. A healthy suspicion based on a lifestyle of bad fruit may serve as motivation, but never a just cause for passing judgment. I taught a whole series on judgment. Judgment isn't bad as long as it's not usurping something that is God's alone, like salvation, like the giving of saving faith. We don't have that ability as individuals to judge that in another person. So that's the balance statement. We can't swing all the way over with some sort of newfound vigor with the gospel and then all of a sudden become judgmental. So faith fruit will be produced in every believer, guaranteed. However, only God knows if a person is saved or not. A healthy suspicion based on a lifestyle of bad fruit may serve as motivation, but never a just cause for passing judgment. Romans 4.14 in the Amplified is a nice reminder of that. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Before his own master he stands approved or falls out of favor. And he who serves the master, the Lord, will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So the last thing uh, an actual believer needs is for you to come along with your self-righteousness and say, I don't see any fruit, you must not be saved. We don't have that right. They may not be saved, but nonetheless, that's none of our business, is it? No. And so that's the balance statement that he wants to continue to work out a bit here this evening. The question on Sunday was posed by the Spirit. Well, 
now that I have the gospel in full view, what do I do with it as it pertains to others? In other words, I have it. I've been intimated with it. What do I do with it? Do I bash people over the head with it? What is the Great Commission all about? What's my attitude towards others, even if they're being stubborn uh, or what have you, or their hearts are a bit hardened on the topic? How do I, as a Christian, fulfill the Great Commission? The presumption here, of course, is that the person contemplating such a question has first looked in the mirror. In other words, you might need to look in the mirror at your own salvation before you go worrying about others. That should go without saying. With that said, he did focus our attention on what not to do, that's for sure. He referred us to one of Jesus' parables, the wheat and the tares, up here in the board. Remember, wheat is the desired crop. It is an analogy. It's a parable. Tares look like wheat but are a type of weed. It's bad for the crop. In ancient agricultural times, an enemy would sow tares to destroy someone's livelihood. We are true believers. Tares are professing believers that never bear any fruit for harvest. So the field, in other words, might be uh, a view of the church, a church even like this one, where there are believers and possibly even professing Christians that are actually unsaved still. And we learn something very valuable against that question, what do we do with the gospel now that we have it front and center with this parable. Go to uh, Matthew 13, 24. We'll read through it quickly as a point of review. Again, Matthew 13, 24. Let's look at Jesus' parable. <clears throat> Matthew thirteen twenty four. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Again, tares don't bear grain or good fruit, therefore they are the unbelievers in the parable. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, do you, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Up here on the board, this is the beginning of our direction on identifying or attempting to call out tares or unbelievers and then trying to uproot them from, say, a church or a situation. You may uproot the wheat refers to the fact that the roots of the wheat and tares in a field are so intimately intertwined that you may uproot the wheat if you pull the tares. There are always tares, unbelievers among us, often in churches, even. The Lord knows how to best raise his own crops. You need to think of it that way. These are his crops after all. It's your flesh that's got that tendency to want to start pointing at people and saying, well, you're not saved. You need to get out of here. This kind of a garbage. Only the Lord knows how to best raise his own crops. 
we ought to obey his commands. I always think about, you know, the married couple where one is saved and one's not. Well, the one that's saved might actually be a witness to the unsaved one. And over time, the unsaved one might actually become saved because of the witness of the unsaved one. Now, if the saved one said, you're not saved, I am, let's get a divorce, then that can't happen. You've just sort of torn it all up. And uh, that really does echo what Jesus' parable here is, or, uh, is saying. So Jesus gives us the answer to our question, you know, well, what do we do with the gospel after it's been sown in us as believers? First, the Bible clearly states that some will receive it, but many will not. Therefore, look at verse 30, Matthew 13, 30. He says, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So uh, the guidance up here on the board is allow both to grow together. It's not a believer's job to discern who is saved and who isn't. We can certainly see their fruit, possibly be motivated if we suspect a false gospel, but only God knows who the tares are among us. And that's an important thing to note. We don't spend our time, in other words, trying to single out people that we think are unbelievers. That's not our job. Uh, If they begin creating factions in the church, then yours truly is going to have a problem with it and they're going to be thrown out. But that's a different story. That's not what's being talked about here. For some additional clarity on this parable, I recommend you take the time after class to read Matthew 13, 36 to 43. That's when he explains a little bit more. We read it on Sunday. The first practical issue tonight that the Spirit wishes to highlight then is patience. Because, think about it, you may have a really good idea in that sense of being surrounded even by tares. Uh, And if you walk in the world, you know that you are surrounded by tares, right? Um, But we have this issue then, well, what do we do? The first issue then is to be patient. Patience. So he wants to talk to you about patience this evening. Salvation for many people, think about it this way, in the The Bible is uh, abundantly clear on the accounts uh, and even the parables in the Bible that salvation for some people is a drawn-out process. And I'm not talking about the gavel comes down, you're justified. I'm speaking about the manward side of things. Salvation, overall deliverance, think about it. Ultimate sanctification is actually part of the overall plan of salvation, which is another word for deliverance. Think about it that way, even. So the whole idea of salvation is a process. I'm not talking about the, the gavel coming down, you are justified. I'm talking about the manwood side of this thing, that it's a drawn-out process for most people. They hear the gospel, they go away. They hear the gospel, then they hear they have to repent, they go away. They hear the gospel, they, have to, they learn they have to repent and count the cost. They go away. Then they finally come back and say, you know what, I've, <laughs> I'm worn out with the old life. I totally need a, a Savior. I repent, and then they might be saved in that situation. But that's a process, you see. That's something that may have taken months, weeks, years even. Who knows how long it might take an individual. And some will immediately say, especially the so-called educated 
group. But what about the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 39-43? He was saved in a jiffy. My response to that is twofold. First, we have no idea what he knew of the gospel prior to the cross. There's not much said about that man on the cross, other than I agree with most that he was saved that day. But we don't know what preconditions occurred to his soil on that day. Second, I would say he could have very likely, in all fairness, been a corner case that is alluded to with the parable of the laborers in Matthew 20, 1 to 16. He just happens to be one in the group that only worked for an hour. That's what that whole parable is about. Some work their whole lives, and then someone comes in at the very end on the cross, gets saved, and God says, hey, you get the same eternal security and the same uh, uh, eternal life that the people who work their whole lives, who have been, quote-unquote, saved their whole lives, have gotten. Well, that's called grace, and that's fine. But we don't know all the details there, so don't use corner cases to buck what the Spirit's saying. Back to our previous point. Salvation for many people is a drawn-out process. And again, I'm speaking from the manward side. As we've seen abundantly in Scripture, Jesus turned many people away who hadn't yet, let's say, counted the cost of discipleship. The ruler is a perfect example. And also many who had heard the full force of the gospel and still turned from it. As many of you will attest, there are those who hear the gospel and walk away, maybe contemplatively, maybe not, not saying much until maybe weeks or months or even years later. The idea with the Great Commission is that we are like the great farmer's helper. We are hired hands in a sense, but it's his field. We are spreading the gospel, sowing seed among the variety of soils. But we must also understand that we aren't always the sole purveyor of the gospel. We're not the only ones, in other words. Um, A good, humble attitude about this is seen with Paul, who sowed the gospel seed alongside other, let's call them, under-farmers. Go to 1 Corinthians 3.6. 1 Corinthians 3.6. So this still goes back to the concept on the table, which is patience. Do we expect, in other words, and are we just in being totally, you know, beside ourselves because we give someone the gospel and they walk away? Should we be... Should we just say, throw the towel in on that person? Should we never try to evangelize them again? Should, be, should we walk away in complete anger and disgust and, you know, distraught uh, and, you know, lose our own sort of bearings for a time? No. No, that's not what Scripture has us doing at all. So look at Paul here. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, I planted... Apollos water, remember the Corinthians, they were famous for, oh, well, I'm from so-and-so, and I'm from so-and-so. They always wanted to make divisions. Any possible way they could stratify even good things from God, like spiritual gifts in chapter 12, men they learned from, any way they could do that thing. Why? Because they liked to do that thing. So this is, on top, this is right after that. 
Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. He's the great farmer, so to speak. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. That means of one direction, so to speak, of one heart. Uh, a true individual is not necessarily concerned. At the end of the day, I don't care if I never, I, I don't I take this with a grain of salt, and you shouldn't care if you ever necessarily directly evangelize somebody. Who cares? Maybe you did all this other work so that a couple of other people were in the position to evangelize. 7, 10, 20, 100, who knows, 1,000 people. What do you care? As long as you did your part. And that's a humble attitude. It's about getting people saved. It's not about, you know, crediting yourself with getting people saved. That's perverting it again in another way. So Paul says in verse 7, so, neither, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. So be it. So there's encouragement here. Be encouraged with this passage, especially when all seems lost with certain people that you love. I I don't know, maybe you would agree, but one of the most frustrating things is to realize that the people you love the most will listen to you the least because they're familiar with you. Oh, it's so frustrating, isn't it? It's like the people you want to shake the most and say, hey, will you listen to me? It's me. You love me. You trust me, right? Yeah, but I know you. You're, I, know, I remember you from the eighth grade. You were the one, you know, doing whatever, ridiculous things. Or maybe it was last year before you got all Jesus freaky on me, right? And I remember you, uh, and that's no good. In other words, you may not be the one that is able to evangelize an individual. So up here on the board, just remember that you're not alone. Always remember that God uses a multitude of evangelists in this world, often on a single individual. Consider that even Jesus couldn't evangelize his own family immediately. Think about that. He came, described who he was, and his own brother's And family said, yeah, no. Nor is town. John 7, 5, Acts 1, 14, Mark 6, 1 to 4. Go to John 7, 5. Go to John 7, 5, in case you don't believe me. Think about that. The Messiah came and his own family didn't believe in him. At least not right away. Which means that, guess what? It was a process. Salvation from the manward side is a process. Soil has to be cultivated. That's the agricultural analogy in the parable. Soil, and it's in more than one parable. It's in multiple parables. Why? Because soil has to be conditioned. Soil has to be cultivated uh, so that it's ripe and ready for uh, sowing that seed, the gospel seed. John 7, 5, look at this. For not even his brothers were believing in him. That's Jesus, the Messiah. If anybody had the gospel right, wouldn't it be him? Fair? (laughs) So here he is, the walking gospel, so to speak. And his own family didn't believe him. So you should be encouraged. 
And I was thinking about that before class. I wonder what that was like for the Messiah. Here I am. No. Sitting around the, the table eating. Here I am, guys. No. Thankfully, later on, we see that his brothers were saved. Go to Acts one fourteen. Acts one fourteen. So, it obviously took a little while for his own family to be evangelized. Acts one fourteen. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. So we know that in the beginning they didn't believe, but then they did believe. And that implies a time. Uh, And that should be encouraging. So in order to be fair to our own evangelistic efforts, we've got to understand that the Lord and Savior himself wasn't able to immediately evangelize those he was closest to. And again, I'm still speaking in human terms. God's the only one who can save. I hope you understand what I'm saying. So don't be offended, even though in this case, it really is you. It really is your fault, so to speak, because you're a member of the family. And I still speak in human terms. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Go to Mark 6.1. Mark 6.1. You don't have any control over those things, but the very fact that you're in or that close to someone, when you go to evangelize them, there's a problem. And you should, truth be told, be very encouraged because it happened to Jesus Christ himself. Mark 6, 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands. And verse 1 says, where was he? In his hometown. Did they receive him appropriately or with open arms? No way. Reminds me of the times we've all felt others questioning our unmistakable sense of assurance and confidence under pressure that since they don't have it in their state of arrogance, that we must somehow be duped by our own ignorance. Sound familiar? Where, where do you get off? Who's this person? Why are you so confident all of a sudden? Oh, I get it. You're just an ignoramus. You must need that. I get it. You're an ignoramus, and this faith that you have is nothing but a crutch that I personally don't need in my awesomeness. Sound familiar? People will almost, I would go so far as to say, resent you for showing up with this newfound confidence that is given to you as a gift by means of grace through faith. The unfaithful begin charging us with questions born of human rationalism just like they did with Jesus. Look at verse 3. This is human rationalism at its best. 
Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That's called human rationalism. Up here on the board, oh, you should see that better. Let me read it to you. I don't know why it got all miniature. Bill, can you read that? <laughs> Liar. He's like, I totally can read that. Remember those, the E's? Remember that, grade school? He's fudging it. I think it does this way. <laughs> Human rationalism. Unbelievers take offense at supernatural phenomena because they cannot rationalize it. Believers are encouraged by the fact that they cannot rationalize it. Let me say that again. Unbelievers take offense at supernatural phenomenon because they cannot realize or rationalize it. Because if I can't rationalize it, then it must be garbage. Believers are enthralled with the fact that with their human intellect, they cannot rationalize it. And that's the distinction between unbelievers and believers, you see. Believers are encouraged by the fact that they cannot rationalize it. Think about that simple fact at length this evening and the fact that God likes to give us things that man cannot rationalize. Why? It gives us hope. Back to our primary point, verse 4. You're still in Mark 6? 6, 6-4. Jesus said to them, and this is our primary point, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Again, do not become discouraged or impatient. The point on the board, again, you're not alone. Think about that. If it happened to Jesus, it can certainly happen to you. Always remember that God uses a multitude of evangelists in this world, often on a single individual. Consider that even Jesus couldn't evangelize his own family immediately, nor his town. John 7, 5, Acts 1, 14, Mark 6, 3-4. The point the Spirit's making is simply that it may take some time and other people besides you for the gospel to result in saving faith. The Bible reveals that while justification is indeed an instantaneous imputation, the concept of salvation is not quite as discreet. It's a process. This is a saving process. Yes, the judicial part of it is instantaneous. As far as God was concerned, since he's not bound by time, it was instantaneous. But I'm speaking in manward terms, in man's terms, terminology. So the justification aspect of the whole of salvation is an instantaneous thing. But the concept of salvation is not quite as discreet, meaning it may take some time before a person receives God's gracious gift resulting in saving faith. Think about that. It may take a person years before they figure out that they're never going to be able to pull off righteousness on their own. They may spend decades in a religion before they realize that they'll never do it on their own. They'll never be quote-unquote good enough. How long that is, I don't know. I guess it depends on how arrogant they are. But we know this to be the case. 
So it may take some time before a person receives God's gracious gift, resulting in saving faith, because God's not going to give the gift until they're ready, until the soil is ready, until they repent, until they're willing to give up the old life for the new, until they're willing to follow Jesus. This is what the Spirit's been saying. Furthermore, we'll never know, although we may be very encouraged by a person's fruit, if a person is truly saved. The point the Spirit's making is thank God for His patience in all of this. Up here in the board, 2 Peter 3.9, the Amplified. The Lord does not delay as though He were unable to act and is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. Remember, God, to God, a thousand years is the same as one, and vice versa, so it doesn't matter. This is what that's saying. But is extraordinarily patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Extraordinarily patient. Listen, if everybody believed the very first time they heard the gospel, he wouldn't have to be patient, would he? But we know that's not the case. For some people, it takes years. It may take almost their whole life. Look at the cross, the, the thief on the cross. I mean, it took, he was strung up on the cross. Who knows? We don't know. Or the person who this evening might be saved and they're 102 years old in their hospital bed taking their last breath and they finally decide to turn towards the Lord. He can do that good work. Absolutely he can. And I believe he does do that thing. But I can't speak to you how long or why it took so long for that particular soil to be prepared. How the heck do I know? I know what the Bible says. I know that's what, that's what the parables are all about. That's what the rest of the Bible is all about. That the gospel, the salvation process may take years for some people. And we have to be okay with that. And because that's the reality, then we have to be, once we're on the other side as saved individuals, we can't look back with impatient hearts. And say, let's go. Why don't you get it? Let's go. You know. And it's usually with the people that are closest to us. And as we just saw with Jesus Christ, those are the people who are least likely to respond to us. God is indeed extraordinarily patient when it comes to salvation issues. Let me give you some more on patience. Go to Revelation 2.19. Talk about the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2.19. Some of you are like saying, oh, if he's that patient, that means I can go do whatever I feel like right now, right? What did Jesus say? Do not put God to the test. Matthew 4. <laughs> that was Satan. Right? Well, if he's that patient, then why don't you just put him to the test? Good luck with that. <laughs> Revelation 2.19. I know you're Thyatira, the church. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. He says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. I gave her time, but she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And again, this whole passage reeks of time being given while these individuals take their time to repent 
I gave her time to repent. I'm giving you time to repent. What are you going to do? Technically, he could slam us all right away. Fair statement? So, again, we see the patience of God. And if we're going to be godly, then we should understand that since it's God's, it's a virtue of ours. Patience is a virtue up here in the board. Patience is especially useful in the process of evangelizing. Our job is to teach the gospel accurately, including the challenging aspects of it that suggest a person count the cost of discipleship. For example, denying self and following Jesus before accepting the invitation. Again, patience is a virtue. Patience is especially useful in the process of evangelizing. If you just show up with the gospel on the end of a sledgehammer and start slamming people over the head and say, you know, take this right now or else you're going to hell. What have you just done besides maybe bruise them, besides maybe alienating them, besides showing yourself as an impatient, unchrist-like person? What have you done? If anything, you put a stumbling block in front of them. Your job is, on the, against the Great Commission, to go make disciples, to go present the gospel accurately. And as the Spirit's been saying, accurately means including all of it, not just, hey, here's a coin, believe and you'll be saved. Saved from what, after all? Saved from what? Is it enough to just say, hey, believe this thing and you're saved? Well, if they don't understand saved from what, what are you teaching them then? That saved just equals going to heaven? Is that what we've been teaching people? That's the watered-down gospel, after all. Saved from what? Because if they don't understand that they need to be saved from the old life, then they don't understand the gospel at all. They don't even understand what Jesus Christ, what he came to, 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 um, to be in his incarnation. He says, I came to serve and to save But if you just flip somebody a coin and say, believe this and you're saved, and you don't finish the sentence, what are you saying? You're better off giving them it all right there, as much as possible, as much as you can discern they're capable. It might even take little baby steps. It may take multiple conversations just about their depravity. I had a discussion with someone about children today, um, that, or it was the other day, that, that a child that doesn't understand a certain level of their own depravity, isn't ready yet, isn't soil that's ripe yet to receive the gospel. You see? That would be what we would call theologically under the age of accountability. You might say to them when they're three years old, hey, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Believe this and you get to go to heaven. What kid's going to go? No, I, I choose hell. <laughs> what are you teaching that child? No, you have to wait until their soil is ready to receive the facts about themselves in their own depravity. And we should not deprive that ever, even if they're small. The gospel doesn't change for little people. The gospel is the gospel. So we have to have patience. Patience is especially useful in the process of evangelizing. Our job is to teach the gospel 
accurately, including the challenging aspects of it that suggest a person count the cost of discipleship, for example, denying self and following Jesus before accepting the invitation. Go to 2 Timothy 4, 1. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. So patience in the gospel, in the presentation of the gospel, and seeing people saved is certainly a virtue. If God has that as part of his essence, then as godly individuals, we ought to exercise it as well. 2 Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, how? With great patience and instruction. So patience is a virtue. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist's patience in evangelism. We all have a little evangelist in us, remember that. And fulfill your ministry. Your ministry is not to try to do part of the work of reconciliation of a person with God. Your job as an evangelist is to patiently present it. And if you have to present it to one person a hundred times, then present it to them a hundred times. As long as they allow you to present it to them, give it to them. If they become antagonistic and negative, this kind of thing, don't cast your pearls before swine. Move on to the next person. Spend your time usefully. So Paul wrote to Timothy in that passage, but the encouragement is universal to all who take on the Great Commission. One more passage to amplify the point on the table. Go to 1 Peter 2.20. 1 Peter 2.20. Again, we're just amplifying that patience is a virtue. 1 Peter 2.20 For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it? This finds favor with God. Hey, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shut up, you Jesus freak. Get out of my face. Sick and tired of this conversation. Okay. Okay. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, or you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. In other words, God is a big fan of patience. Hence the very fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Love, peace, what? Patience. And the multitude of places throughout the Bible where believers are called to patience when it comes to interacting with others, particularly those who are sinning or still in their sins as unbelievers. Patience is a virtue. At the end of the day, as we await the final judgment, we may rest assured only God can see a person's heart. And that is, to me, very encouraging. I don't have to necessarily overly concern myself with who's saved and who's not saved. If I have an unction or a sense that someone might not be, of course the Spirit's going to lead me to try to find
finds an opportunity to present them with the gospel. Of course he's going to do that good work. Of course he is. But I can't lose sleep at night over this person or that person or this person or that person. Um, at the end of the day, it's really only God that knows for sure. To help us with the point on the board, Jesus also told the parable of the foundations, and again, the flood and the torrents in Luke 6. Go ahead and go to Luke 6, 46. The flood and the torrent in Luke 6, 46 to 49. The houses represent one's religious life. The rain represents divine judgment. The flood, the torrent of rain represents divine judgment. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug a deep, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Up here on the board, the house on the rock, only the house built on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ is the rock, will stand. Note also that the builder dug deep, laying a foundation on the rock. This is not a trivial task. Verse 49, But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So juxtaposed to the house with the foundation is the house without a foundation in Christ, we might add, up here in the board. This house is incapable of withstanding divine judgment. This alludes to those at the great white throne judgment who will stand on their own merit and be sentenced to the lake of fire. The key point relative to our studies, though, is on this idea of foundations. Listen, if you look at a house, and don't get all technical. Oh, I can see the foundations like a foot, you know. Building code in here says it, you know, like you're missing the point. We aren't to judge the foundation or lack of in others. Only God knows who is saved and who isn't. Our job is to meet the requirements of the Great Commission in humility towards God and patience, or as the Bible speaks to it, forbearance even towards others. Again, our job is to meet the requirements of the Great Commission in humility towards God and patience or forbearance towards others. Go to Proverbs 25.15. Proverbs 25.15. So forbearance is an analog to patience. Proverbs 25.15. And I hope you get what the Spirit's been saying. We're still on the idea of a balance statement. The Spirit gave us in the first, what, nine lessons of this. Some pretty heavy material about faith-producing works, absolutely. Those who don't, who look at their fruit and don't have, uh, don't have fruit, good fruit, might not be saved. They have to reevaluate, et cetera, et cetera. But in all of that, he doesn't want us to get lopsided. He doesn't want us to take on something that isn't ours to judge. Someone's salvation is between them and the Lord. So Proverbs 25:15, the best thing we can do so that we don't get upset and derail ourselves in a moment of impatience is to be encouraged by the word. And that's why he gave us even the instance with Jesus not being able to, quote, evangelize his own brothers and his town. 
Proverbs 25, 15, for, or by forbearance, or patience in other words, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Again, by forbearance or patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Think about that. It's a lot easier, listen, it's a lot easier to present a topic or an idea or something like that to a leader with a sense of forbearance or patience so that they can analyze it for themselves uh, in a soft tongue. But if you hit them over their head and say, you know what, you're the worst boss I've ever had, first of all. Second of all, I'm way smarter than you. Third of all, I think I'm just going to write to the person above you and then the person above that person that you ought to be fired unless you believe what I'm presenting to you here. How far is that going to go? Not very far. How about this? A soft tongue breaks the bone. Concentrate. Patience is power. Up here on the board. Concentrate. I know it's getting late. Patience is power. The pinnacle of true power is not manifest in raw force. Rather, it is shown through virtues such as patience. It takes more power to exercise patience than to force one's hand. The long-lasting effects are also greater. Patience is power. The pinnacle of true power is not manifest in raw force. Rather, it is shown through virtues such as patience. It takes more power to exercise patience than force one's hand. The long-lasting effects are also greater. Think about that. If God said, all right, that's it. Stop the presses right now. Do you believe yes or no? But I'm not sure. Do you believe yes or no? Well, what happens if I believe? You go to heaven. Okay, I totally believe. I totally say I believe. If you, But he doesn't do that, does he? He lets the tears grow up with the weed even. Maybe some will be saved. He patiently, excruciatingly, exceptionally waits while people have given, are given the opportunity to be saved. Thank God. The power, then, is not in him just forcing the issue right away. The power is in him being patient and waiting for people to come to what? Repentance. That's real power. God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and he chooses to be what? Patient. So if we're going to be godly, then guess what we ought to be? If we're going to have his power in all of this, we also need to be patient. And a lot of people need to remember that because people, this is what I see happen time and time again. One person leapfrogs another person and they look back and say, what's taking you so long? And they begin to beat on the other person. What's wrong with you? Why don't you see what I see? What's wrong with you? Consider the parable of the soils. Again, first the point on the board. Patience is power. The pinnacle of true power is not manifest in raw force. Rather, it is shown through virtues such as patience. It takes more power to exercise patience than force one's hand. The long-lasting effects are also greater. You might be able to get somebody to do something for a time, but they didn't do it with their own conviction. So what good is that? Do you understand? 
consider the parable of the soils and consider all that the Spirit's been saying about a cheap or convenient gospel, what you get is a bunch of professing Christians that possibly fall away later on, proving themselves unbelievers all along. Because grandma was in my face and she said, do you believe or not? I need to know. I'm like 95. I need to know that you're going to be saved before I croak. Maybe she doesn't say that. Maybe she's a little bit more elegant than my grandmother, obviously. And you say, all right, grandma, I believe, okay? I believe. And you go to church and you go through all these motions and you do all the things and you look the part and you taste the gospel. And then when the time comes, it's like, eh, never really believed. I don't have grandma to answer to anymore. She finally did die. And uh, I'm just going to go on my own way. I don't care for Christ. I don't think he's Lord. I don't think anything. So I know what I used to say, but I don't say it anymore. That's what happens when you force something on someone. Patience. Patience is often the key ingredient for righteous consummation. It is unsung in today's instant gratification society. We must present the true gospel and wait patiently while others respond. Again, patience is often the key ingredient for righteous consummation. It is unsung in today's instant gratification society. We must present the true gospel and wait patiently while others respond. If we lose our patience and begin casting aspersions at those we are trying to evangelize, we run the risk of misrepresenting the patient one, Jesus Christ. Again, what's our principle here in Proverbs 25, 15? By forbearance or patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. There are too many people in this world that speak too much, too quickly, and would do themselves and everyone else a big favor by keeping their mouth shut for a while. I'm totally convinced of that. And it's honestly, it seems worse than, it seems worse in um, Christianity than anywhere else. It's like you would think that once you learn the truth of the gospel and that you really are saved and you have the love of God and he patiently waited for you all those years, that you would echo that, that you would reflect that to others. But no, people go, I'm ready. (laughs) Don't you get it? What What are you waiting for? And we become self-righteous. We turn back to people. It's like we've become self-righteous jerks. What? Well, that, how's that the love of Christ? How's that anything? Those are the people you have to wonder about, for real. Because what's the Bible say? The Bible says if you don't love the brethren, the truth's not in you. You're not abiding in Christ. Uh-oh. You mean I should look in the mirror myself? Yeah, you should look in the mirror yourself. Because that's not Christ. That thing, that beast called you is not Christ. You're just going around now beating up people. And it's not meant to beat people up. It's supposed to bring them to repentance. Those that have a contrite heart. 
those that are already lowly. You don't need to beat somebody up that's already lowly. I came to save sinners, not the righteous, said Jesus Christ. You don't need to beat somebody over the head who's already humble. You need to show them Scripture. This is what the Word of God says. This is what Jesus Christ Himself said. This is the truth. You deal with it. I won't water it down. I'm not going to belittle you. I'm not interested in belittling you. I'm not interested in beating you up. I'm interested in giving you truth. Go to James 1.19 and then I'll close. So a lot of people really should spend more time, I don't know, not talking. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, just step back for a moment. Have a little patience. Not everybody's a superstar like you. You know? <clears throat> James 1.19 This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Imagine that. Let's read it again, shall we? This one's juicy. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear. Quick to hear. It means listen. Shut your mouth and listen. Slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That means the things that you're getting angry over, they're not even righteous. The things that you keep, that are compelling you to open up that stink hole called your mouth are not godly. Do you understand? You're just spewing sewage all over the place. You're not helping out. You're making things worse. You're making things worse. A, a, a sinner doesn't need to be beaten into obedience. They need to hear the word of God. They need to be built up. They need to be edified. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.